In our Bibles, let's take a look at John chapter 9. I want to read one of the verses for you, as often is the custom. And uh, let me just read verse 2. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at today's message. So this is a question from the disciples, because right away it says in verse number 2, his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the privilege that we have now to spend time together in the house of the Lord. We thank you for those things that have come before that have prepared our hearts. We thank you for the choir and their desire to sing and minister to us in that way. We thank you for those that play the instruments, Lord. Always that's such a blessing to us uh, that we might have that accompaniment, that we might have that encouragement. And uh, thank you for the songs that we can sing. Thank you for the resources financially that you've made available to us so that we have something to give and to be able to do it with a cheerful and glad heart. Thank you for that. And thank you for each person who found it possible to be here today, Lord. Uh, we realize that buildings are not really the church. They're the facility and tool that we use, and the church consists of the people. And we pray, Father, that you will just uh, knit us together in full assurance of love today uh, for each other. Help us to notice maybe some empty seats where people normally sit that we need to uh, call their names in prayer and ask that they may be restored to us uh, soon. And Father, also, Lord, that you will just um, continue to uh, use the Word of God. We thank you that it's living and powerful. And Lord, you know each individual here today. You know exactly what our needs are. You know well beyond anything that I've done to prepare this week or any thoughts that I've had. And thank you that there's always the, the, the peace and always the satisfaction of knowing that you're able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. You're able to go way above and beyond anything that has been meditated upon or prepared by the preacher and to meet the needs that we have in our own individual hearts and lives as the Holy Spirit ministers. So uh, deliver us, Lord, from uh, those distractions, um, those uh, weaknesses of bodily infirmity, anything like that that would keep us from being able to uh, glean the blessing that you have for us here today. And I pray that you would also just be with uh, me, Lord. Help me just to be able to find liberty and freedom and peace and uh, just the words that you would have, nothing more, nothing less. And we'll thank you now. Bless the message, we pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. So the title this morning, as you might be able to sort of guess from John chapter 9 and verse 2, is Master Who Did Sin? That's quite an interesting question, isn't it? It seems like we ask that question a lot, and I, I uh, sort of guess maybe that maybe you don't perceive where I'm headed with this, but I would sort of like to call your attention to that by way of introduction. Of course, we're looking at these questions that people ask Jesus. I pointed out already this is a question from the disciples, and those are kind of near and dear, I think, in many ways, because the disciples, they're just so much like us. And I think you're always better to look at the disciples, not so much from the platform of, boy, look what he did, or uh, with criticism or with self-righteousness, but rather from the standpoint of how we just find a mirror in them of our own foibles and failings. And many times the questions they asked the Lord were the same types of questions or they did the same kinds of things that you and I did. This is kind of a well-known question that they, he, they asked of Jesus from John chapter 9. The, the scene is that they're, they pass by, they see a man that probably they're somewhat familiar with because in those days, and you find reference to that here, Someone like this who had this kind of disability, who was blind, and in this case the man was congenitally blind, um, he might be able to make his way. I, I've seen people on the streets of Huntington that were blind with a little stick walking along. Some people are able to make their way. 
The man in John chapter 5 who was impotent, who couldn't walk, had to have others take him. And the man that we read about in the book of Acts, the early chapters, who was at the beautiful gate, also had to have people take him, but they begged because they didn't have any real ability to work or this is a true disability. This is a situation of someone who really does need help. And uh, so it, this was common in the ancient world, and it's, it's probably not a far-fetched idea to think that may, they may have noticed this person before, but now he becomes the star attraction. They walk by, they see this man, and the question that they ask Jesus is, Lord, was it him? Was he the sinner, or was it his parents? That this awful tragedy of congenital blindness befell him. And I think to myself, you know, there we go. That is just like you and me, that we constantly look at other people and jump to the conclusion that they've done something wrong and we have all of these preconceived notions and sometimes rather ill-formed and harsh judgments of people because we attribute suffering and difficulty and misfortune that we're able to see that has come into their lives to something that they have done wrong. And Jesus is gentle about this, but... (laughs) I, you know, I, I get tickled because I, I, every time I think about this, I, I can't help but think back to the 1990 president, or 1980 rather, sorry, the 1980 presidential election. And of course, the primaries were already settled and Jimmy Carter was the incumbent, so he was the Democratic uh, nominee for president. He was running for re-election and Ronald Reagan was the Republican opponent and it got to be the time that they were having debates. Well, you know how they always do. Uh, So many times politicians aren't completely honest with the facts. And Reagan knew in advance that one of the things that Carter would probably do in the speech was he would probably try to seize upon uh, the notion that Ronald Reagan was critical of Medicare and that Ronald Reagan might try to do away with Medicare. Of course, Reagan never said any such thing. Reagan did have some criticisms of how certain parts of the program were handled and felt that earlier there was a competing piece of legislation that would have been a stronger, better one. But Ronald Reagan was never about trying to take away Medicare from people. And so predictably, here's what happened. The debate got underway and when it was one of the times that President Carter was speaking, he went into this rant. Uh, about Reagan and how Reagan was going to try to take away Medicare. And in that moment, it became famous. Reagan looked over at him, somewhat anticipating that this was was going to happen, looked over at him when he was finished, and the audience turned its attention to uh, Ronald Reagan. He looked at Jimmy Carter with just kind of a smile on his face, maybe a, a tad dismissive, And he said to him what became a famous and signature line for Ronald Reagan from that point forward, there you go again. Some of you will remember that. As I say, it became a signature line from that point forward. The audience laughed. And because, I mean, he he beat him at his own game and sort of exposed the fact that this tired rant, as I say, of Carter's was recognized by people as being exactly that. It, It didn't really have a foundation in fact. Well, I think about that story because I think that applies to you and me here. There you go again. I can see Jesus in a certain sense thinking about the disciples. There you go again. And, of course, it's a human story, but it does help us to try to understand that sometimes the Lord is exceedingly, is exceedingly patient and long-suffering with us 
doesn't it? Because this question that they asked, if you really think about it, Lord, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, this not only reflects poor theology, but as I say, preeminently, it, re it reflects this tendency that is so common to you and me to rush to judgment of people. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. We're going to, first of all, look at the assumption, which is kind of what we've uh, talked about a little bit already to try to get the question in our mind and what they're thinking about, but I want to elaborate a little bit more on it. And then we'll spend the balance of the time that we have looking at the Lord's answer, and hopefully we learn a few things and can be admonished once again to be cautious and careful in this respect. Well, what is the assumption? Folks, you know, it is one thing to believe that we are born with a sin nature, that we inherit that sin nature from Adam. But Scripture does teach that. It's one thing to believe that. That's true. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, one man, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And we know that each of us is born not good, but evil. We know that we have a fallen nature. We know that we have inherited that from Adam. We also know that as soon as we are able to make conscious choices, that we prove ourselves to be sinners not only by nature, which is the hereditary nature that we have from Adam, but by choice, two, twice in need of God's grace in order to be saved, sinners by nature and by choice. We know that much is true, but you are making a quantum leap that is really not supported in Scripture to say that its punishment is also happening prior to the fact that the punishment itself is inherited. Now, it's true that you do see situations sometimes. This is not what we're talking about here, but I want to head this off the past because you might be thinking about this. Certainly, it's true that sometimes the sins of the parents carry forward. Um, you think about people, it's a sad thing to see this, but you think about sometimes pregnancies that occur, and, and sometimes perhaps they're unwanted, and perhaps you have a, a young single mother, and, and she's just gotten uh, into trouble by not being uh, observant of moral behavior, and now she's pregnant. She really doesn't want to be pregnant, and she has a situation on her hands, and many times you find these people, they, they use drugs, they drink. They don't really care about the life of the child that's within them, and sometimes you find those types of things carrying forward. That much is true, but this is not so much what the disciples are talking about, and uh, the belief was prevalent and of what the disciples actually quoted here. The, the, the disciples may have come up with something that was poor theology and, a, and, a, and an ill-conceived uh, prejudgment, but it was not uncommon in that day. In fact, if you move forward in chapter number 9 and look at verse 34, now it's going to be people who were learned in theology, so to speak. It's going to be the Pharisees who now make this comment. And later in the story, as it unfolds, they themselves say to this blind man who has now been healed, they say to him, well, the verse says, they answered and said unto him, thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. When you see that expression, they cast him out, that essentially means they, they excommunicated him. That's what happened there. Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? How haughty, how self-righteous. And yet God at times may visit chastening upon people from their sins. We know that that's true. Uh, you think about the man in John chapter 5. I referred to him earlier, but let's turn a couple pages back to that for just a moment. 
In John chapter 5 and verse 14, now Jesus found this man after he healed him. You remember the story. We actually had a message from this in this same morning series. Um, they asked him this, but when Jesus finds the man later, sort of after the ruckus has died down with the Pharisees who took issue with what Jesus had done and what Jesus said, he finds the man, verse 14, Afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing befall thee. Well, we certainly know that in life, sometimes God does chasten us for wrongdoing. And God does certainly at times bring down his, his displeasure and his judgment upon people for their sins. Sometimes this happens in the life of Christian people, and we call that chastening. Um, sometimes I think we're worried people are going to get confused over final judgment, and we're not trying to say that. But chastening really is a form of God's judgment. You know, and think of the verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30 where Paul made the observation. What was going on in chapter 11, he was talking about communion, but as was so often the case, he had to deal with problems that were going on in the church of Corinth, and they were disorderly, and they were eating and drinking unworthily. And he said, you know what? For this cause, many are weak and sickly, and many sleep. Well, that's not people sleeping in church. That's people who are chastened to the point of the Lord taking them home. God is perfectly capable of doing that, but that's God's business. And there are many times, I think, that it is true. We're exhorted to judge righteous judgments. There are times when we can observe that, that God has, in fact, visited his displeasure on some. It's one thing to have that. It's another thing altogether to leap to the conclusion that because someone has a particularly grievous instance of suffering in their lives, like this man, to be born blind, it's another thing altogether to leap to the conclusion that that's happened to them because they've done something wrong or because their parents did something wrong. It's kind of a walking out on thin ice that's going to fall in on you because... You're out on a, to change the figure of speech, you're out on a theological limb that's going to break on you because it won't hold the weight that you're putting on it. So the disciples were wrong, and the, one of the reasons that they were wrong is because they didn't have all the facts. So number one, they were wrong because of ignorance. And I, I point this out because these are the same two things, this one and one other, these are the same two things that are so often at work when you and I make the same mistake and do the same thing. We don't, number one, have all the facts. We think we know something, but how often do we really know all the facts? And many, many times we leap to judgments and say things about people and we really don't know everything that's going on. We're not qualified to say that which is why the Bible has so many warnings, judge not that ye be not judged, and all of these types of things. So in their particular case, I think we can, kind of, we can talk about poor theology, but the, the biggest thing that we see here is just the fact that they didn't have all the facts, and it was ignorance. But the Pharisees, when you get down later in the chapter to that verse 34 that I read a moment ago, thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us, and they cast him out. Now you're adding, because they not only were wrong because they also did not have the facts, but they added another wrong to this, and that was that it was in their, their whole judgment was tinged with an air of haughtiness, arrogance, pride, and self-righteousness. Now, beloved, when you put those things together, I feel ashamed sometimes because I think that's exactly what's operating sometimes in me and you 
We don't know the facts. We're ignorant of the facts. And on top of that, we conceive of ourselves as being oftentimes better than other people. And that subtle pride keeps sneaking in. And it causes us to say things and form judgments that are altogether unwarranted. We're all guilty of it. And so that's what's going on here with the assumption that's been made. I sort of like the story I ran into recently about the first grade teacher. Some of you have been teachers, so you can perhaps identify this. And if you didn't teach in public school, maybe some of you had taught in Sunday school before. But So this particular lady was a, a teacher of first graders. And she had the kids coming into the library for a reading session. And she, they all sat down in front of her on the carpet there in the library and were eagerly awaiting the story. And she was in front of them, and she had the storybook on her lap. But she had the storybook turned down. She wasn't quite ready to uh, get into the story. She wanted to kind of engage them a little bit first. And so she said, raise your hand if you like pizza. Well, boy, it didn't take long. I mean, those hands just went up like, whoo, like that, almost the speed of light. Well, then she upped the ante a little bit. She said, raise your hand if you like chocolate chip cookies. And man, if they could go up faster, they went up faster. Some of them threw both hands up. And then she asked them this question. She said, raise your hand if you like frog legs. Well, all the hands went down. And if there was anything to be heard, it was kind of just a collective, ew. <laughs> so the teacher said, really? She said, do you know that frog legs are considered a, a delicacy in French and Japanese cuisine? Little kids just kept looking at her like. And she, then she said to the kids, said, no, wait a minute. She said, raise your hands if you've actually ever eaten a frog leg. Okay, now I won't ask you to do that. I have one time. It, it wasn't bad. It's kind of like fishy chicken. I mean, it, it didn't really make me want to go do it again, but it was okay. I mean, you know, whatever. It's not a problem. But raise your hand if you've actually eaten a frog leg. Nothing. Silence, dead silence. No hand was raised. The kids kept looking at her almost with a look of horror. The teacher said to them, she said, how on earth do you know that you hate frog legs if you've never even tried them. And the kids just shrugged. They really know what to say. Finally, one of the boys said, they sound gross. There's another girl that said, I think I'd throw up if I ate one. Well, the teacher used this as a great opportunity to, just to launch into the whole idea of preconceived notions. You laugh at that story, but I do remember... One time we had some folks over for dinner. There was some uh, younger couple was newer to the church, and uh, their parents had attended some too, so we just uh, asked them both over. And we had a, you know, a sort of a, maybe a typical meal like we would, would, would have for company. And we got into the meal and had conversation, and people were eating the food and all this kind of thing. And uh, finally someone said, you know, this is really good. What is it? I said, oh, venison. You could just kind of sense a slight little, nothing was said, but you could just kind of sense a slight little 
And then the guy, the younger guy, the younger husband and the younger couple told me later, he said, I just kind of, we weren't quite sure what to think. And I thought, really, you live in rural central Pennsylvania? And, but it's strange how these things happen, right? And everything is kind of relative by your experience, but we do sometimes do this, right? We rush to judgment. We really don't have all the facts, and uh, that's what's going on here. So let's see how the Lord deals with this. Um, so in the answer, Jesus provides a correction to this, and it's uh, so typical of Jesus. I mean, he's gentle. This question is asked by the disciples, and I marvel, as I say sometimes, at the Lord's long-suffering, and, but I don't think that he was just long-suffering with them. I think he's probably twice as long-suffering with me. But you know what, folks? The truth of the matter is there can be a whole vast variety of reasons, other reasons, that is, that other people have suffering and, and misfortune in their lives. In this particular case, I want you to think about the one that's right here for a moment. In this particular case, you have blindness. Nobody here wants to be blind, much less to have been blind from birth. So you can talk about the fact that this was a difficult thing, and, and I wouldn't downplay that at all. I think it is a difficult thing to have to be in a situation like that. But Jesus says that the reason for it is, as he clarifies, verse number 3, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, like I said, you can think about this from a human standpoint. You can think, wow, you mean the Lord was involved in this even in this man's birth, even before his birth. The Lord knew this individual and the Lord chose this individual because he wanted to use him as an object to display his powerful works. And you can look at that from a human standpoint, and you can also rush to judgment and say, that's not fair. Be mighty careful when you start talking down to God about what's fair. Rather look at it this way. If you think about it from the standpoint of heaven, you know, folks, we're bound by time. It's true. So we have this weakness. We're bound by time. And it's, we think of, of what's here in this life and the things that we go through here in this life as all there is. The truth of the matter is, do you think that man who was born blind in glory now, do you think that he's even worried about that? No. He's praising God because God sought him out. God knew him before he was born. God formed him in order to make him a special trophy of his grace and to use him as a living example of this saying, this I am saying that this story carries all the way over from chapter 8 where he said, I am the light of the world. This man was living proof of this physically and spiritually, which Jesus' miracles were meant to betoken spiritual truths. And these miracles, by the way, were, according to the Old Testament, and notably in the book of Isaiah, these miracles were well known to be uh, indicative of the Messianic age. Here's just a couple of examples of this. Isaiah chapter 35, you can write the reference down or you can turn if you want. It probably doesn't take that much to beat me to it because these pages don't part too readily. But here's Isaiah 35 and verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. 
If we go over to chapter 42, you have another example of this. Chapter 42 in verse number 7, it says here, let's read verse 6. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light to the Gentiles. That's the servant of the Lord. That's the Messiah. And then he says in verse 6, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. And this man is not only chosen by God to illustrate that saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. Now, the Lord corrected the physical problem, but the spiritual truth was paramount because later in the chapter we read that Jesus sought him out and he came to know the Lord as his personal Savior. We read about that here. In the latter part of the chapter. So look over in verse number 38. Jesus, let's read verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both... Well, uh, let's read verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And then when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? It's another question in the chapter. He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now what have you got? You've got a man chosen before the foundation of the world. Yes, he comes into this world facing certain hardship as a result of the choice that God made, but God also chose him to be a trophy of his grace. He becomes one of the seven sign miracles in the Gospel of John. He becomes a powerful living, living illustration of one of the I am sayings in John. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He becomes all of that. And I ask you, do you think he's holding the Lord taking the Lord to task in glory now about the few days of hardship that he endured in this life. And I suggest to you that neither will you, neither will I, and that we will all be ashamed of those times when we did. To imagine that God has chosen us, that God has saved us and given us and holy calling which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, that God has given us a life to live out for his honor and glory and filled it with whatever it is that he sees fit and knows is best so that we have therein an opportunity to reflect his glory and that he might work in us for others to see him. We need to look at this a different way. But we all have trouble with it, don't we? But we need to be reminded that we need to look at it a different way. Let's move forward to anticipate another story, John chapter 11. You talk about someone who had difficulty and misfortune come into his life. Would you have said that Lazarus did something wrong? But Lazarus went sick, right? And when Lazarus went sick, Jesus was a couple days off, and the sisters, this is the Mary Martha Lazarus family, don't forget that. They were close. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister. These people were close. Jesus had a very close relationship with them. It's not that Jesus doesn't love us all, but Jesus had a very close human bond and relationship with these people. 
And when they sent word over, he whom thou lovest is sick. And what would we immediately expect? Well, if, surely if he loves him, he'll, he'll take care of the situation. He didn't. Do you think it caused the sisters to question God? Sure. They upbraided him when he, got, when he finally went and got, with, got in earshot of them. They both sort of hit him with the same question. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Truth of the matter is, Jesus didn't need to be there. It was apparent that Jesus had something else going. And, beloved, look, I'm not preaching rough because I just see me. I just see you. They were in a rush to judgment. Why didn't he come? Must mean that he doesn't love us like he said he did. Must mean that he doesn't care about us like the Bible says. And we begin to doubt and we begin to waver. And what's Jesus' response to this? Look at verse number four. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. You know, folks, there are a lot of things in life that we don't choose. And there are a lot of things in life we wouldn't choose. I can tell you a whole long list that I've got. I've got a whole long list of things I don't want to ha- see happen. And I've been a pastor for all my, all my years of career. And I have seen a lot of stuff happen to people. And I think to myself, boy, that's one I hope I never have to deal with. I hope I don't ever have to deal with dementia. There's a lot of things I could tell you about. And you probably have your list too. I guess it would be more appropriate to say, I just hope the people around me don't have to deal with dementia on my part. I have a lot of things on that list, but you know, in my better moments, on my better days, I just say, Lord, whatever it is, I'd just as soon be raptured than die. Wouldn't you? Well, I'll tell you what, that's the blessed hope. But if it takes dying to understand what it is to walk the veil with him and the the fact that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, if it takes that, I won't argue. I don't think Lazarus is worried about it now, do you? I keep wondering what Lazarus might have been thinking. Why hasn't he come? Why hasn't he come? Why hasn't he come? And Lazarus and the sisters both, I'm sure we're in a rush to judgment, but you know God was glorified. Isn't that what we tell him we want with our lives? But this is hard. This is hard to ask for yourself things that you know you don't humanly want to go through and endure. But in this particular case, Lazarus also becomes one of the sign miracles. There were only seven of them chosen John tells us this, many other things truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. What do you think it would be like to have your name in Scripture and to be one of those? And also illustrative of another of the great I am sayings, because when the sisters came to Jesus to complain Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again. Verse 24, in the resurrection at the last day, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, even if he dies, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
And out of this experience, her brother's death that she did not want to happen because she sent to Jesus to come that it might not happen. Out of this experience, her faith was strengthened. She grew to understand more of God's grace, more of God's working, and more of God's power. And even to see that her brother had been chosen to be an instrument of the glory of God. You get to the end of this chapter, how did all that work out? A whole ton of people believed as well. Not just Christian people as we think of it, the two sisters and others whose faith was strengthened by what they saw occur that day. But verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so it was. I reach out, beloved, because it's so hard. It's easy to preach and it's hard to live. Because there are so many things in life that are hurtful. I mean, they're hurtful to us when we look at them on the surface. Not minimizing, they do hurt. There are so many things that can go on in life that don't seem fair, that don't seem just. But you know what? It keeps on bringing me back. What do I really believe? The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. I think when Abraham asked that question of God, when he was worried about Lot being killed in Sodom, and he asked that question of God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right And, of course, I came from a school where you heard that all the time. Do right. But I think about that, and I think, what do I really believe? Am I really going to be so arrogant as to say, God, you made a mistake? Am I really going to be so foolish as to suggest, God, I could have done better there. This wasn't a good move on your part. Do I understand it? No. But what am I going to do? I have my faith. I have to believe. And in that belief, a certain peace comes. The longer we kick against the pricks, the longer we wrestle, the longer we allow ourselves to be frustrated by things, the less of the peace we have the more we come by God's grace to the place where we submit even to the unpleasantries of life, believing that God is too wise to make a mistake and too loving to do anything that would hurt us, ultimately hurt us, the peace returns. There's an interesting story about an American pastor and author. Some of you have probably heard his name before, but his name is James Brooks. Brooks was on one occasion visiting in the home of a family, and the woman, he got into the the room where the visit was taking place, and he heard uh, uh, just a a bird was singing. But, you know, it wasn't like birds that you sometimes hear, and it's just kind of, just kind of a lot of chirping. It was quite unusual because it was 
somehow the bird was capable of producing a, a melody, and it was beautiful. And the preacher was intrigued with this, and he asked the woman, how on earth did it come to be that this bird could, uh, could do that? She said, well, it's like this. She said, in the dark of the night, I would go there to the cage and teach that bird those notes one at a time until the bird could reproduce them. That's how it came to be. It came to be in the dark of the night that the bird learned to sing like that. Beloved, I'm afraid that that is also true in our lives. It's so often in the dark of the night. It's so often in the cloudy circumstances, the overcast circumstances, the difficult circumstances of life that we really learn to sing. Two cases here in John that I gave you as illustrations of the fact that, you know, there are a lot of reasons that misfortune, suffering, and difficulty come into the lives of people just as examples to prove how little so often we know and how wrong we are sometimes when we rush in to judge. And I would think about one more. We don't really have time to talk about it. I just want to mention it. I think about Job. And Job, to my knowledge, and I think to yours too, because if you read the book, never really found out why. We know why. At least we know what God gave us to understand of why. Job doesn't know about this contest, so to speak, that's going on between Satan and God. When I first started reading that book, and in weaker moments, I still think about it, but I think about it now and I smile because I realize it's the wrong reaction. But I used to read that story and I used to think, the Lord, next time you decide to prove something to Satan, find someone else. But that's how we are, see? Nobody stands in line for it. Job never really found out. But the Lord had his reasons. Now the whole story is recorded as one of the truly unique books in the Bible that, that deals... You talk about the fact that the Bible deals with every issue. In one way or another, the Bible does. does. The whole book of Job occupies a very unusual place in Scripture in being basically a treatise, a theodicy of suffering. Or to put it in different ways, why is there suffering in the world or why do good th bad things happen to good people? The Bible's not afraid of approaching those subjects. You can't ask a question too hard. But we're often warned, I think, about these judgments. And I think of a couple of verses 1 Corinthians, that have meant a lot to me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time come, until, until the time before the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. Or Proverbs eighteen thirteen, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and shame unto him. And beloved, I believe that you and I have made a big mess a lot of times and end up and are going to end up with a lot of egg on our faces for things we've 
jumped to conclusions about and were wrong. You know, it happens to all of God's people. But so here's a story just to sort of illustrate the point. This one was John Wesley. John Wesley was, uh, didn't have a very high regard for a certain gentleman. He thought he was miserly and covetous. And on one particular occasion, um, the man made a, a small contribution to uh, a very worthy cause of charity that undoubtedly Wesley was involved with in some way, and Wesley openly criticized him. But after the incident, the man went to John Wesley, and he said, I want to give you some idea of my circumstances. He said, you see, before I became a believer, he said, I wasn't wise. I ran up very significant debts. And he said, so now, he said, I can only give my tithe and sometimes a little bit more. Because he said, you see, I must prove to those people that when Jesus changed my life, he also made me an honest man. Can you imagine how John Wesley must have felt? Well, he apologized. Thank God for grace. He apologized to the man. But I want to ask you one other question in closing, just to show you, try to bring this a little closer than John Wesley. You have a hymnal that's produced by Majesty Music. And this particular hymnal has many, many of Ron Hamilton's songs in it. Do you know that Ron Hamilton and his wife Shelley have been the subject of quite a bit of difficulty, suffering, and misfortune in their lives? I want to tell you something, folks. When I was doing graduate work in school, I had a graduate fellowship, which meant that I was a student, a graduate student, but I was also part of the faculty because I taught first-year Greek for two years and second-year Greek for two years. So on Wednesdays, when there was faculty meeting in the War Memorial Chapel, I went, just along with the full-time faculty. We were required. And you'd go to that meeting, and it was just kind of a once-a-week a, a meeting that was held there. You know who was a part of that also during my years there? He's a little older. Ron Hamilton. I was there when he was diagnosed with that situation with his eye. I was there when the prayer request was read that we were to pray for him. I was there when it happened. Would he have chose, chosen to lose an eye? I doubt it. Little did he ever know that out of that would come Patch the Pirate. Sometimes God just works in ways that we can't quite understand. Later in life, 2013, I believe, they lost their son, Jonathan. He jumped off a building in Greenville, South Carolina. He took his own life. He's the one who wrote the lyrics to the song, You Are Only Always Good. But somehow he was overcome. Somehow he believed the lie. Now Ron Hamilton himself suffers with dementia. 
How many of you here this morning are willing to stand up and say it must be because of some hidden sin in his life? Do you see what I'm talking about? Doesn't make us look too good sometimes, does it, beloved? Best if you don't really have the facts to be able to make wise and righteous judgments to keep your mouth shut. Because he that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and shame unto him. Best to give our lives, however weak we are, however much we struggle with God's decisions, best to put them in the hands of somebody who knows better what he's doing than we do and trust him. Dear Heavenly Father,